Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 through 24, and can be found on page 143 in our Pew Bibles, or 279 in the large print. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 24. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for all the many ways that you have blessed our lives far beyond anything that we deserve. God, we thank you for the ways that you have continued to reveal yourself to us, that you have continued to work in and through us. And God, that in Jesus, you draw us to yourself. God, we pray that this morning that you would help us to see you more clearly and the life that you have called us to in Jesus. And God, that you would continue that work of transformation that you are working in our hearts and lives, that more and more we would be people identified by your grace and by holiness as we are continually transformed into the likeness of your Son as we continue to draw near to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 9 through 24. Moses says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb When he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land, and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Turning into our New Testament lesson, the book of John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 34, which can be found on page 863 in 
uh, our pew Bibles are 1653 in the large print. John 4, 27 to 34. This is the uh, time when Jesus had been talking with the Samaritan woman as his disciples were out. And uh, as they come back, we have starting in verse 27. It says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I'm sure you are aware, tax season is upon us. And it is that uh, time of year when everybody starts calculating and figuring out, okay, how much do we owe? And that's one of those numbers you want to get right. Because you certainly don't want to overpay, and they certainly don't want you to underpay. (laughs) So you want to make sure you get that right. And uh, as we come to approach God, sometimes the question is sort of like how we file our taxes. Where people will come to God and say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, here's here's the question I have, is how much do I owe him? whether of my money or of my time or of my energy or my life, what, how much do I owe? And so people will look through and say, okay, financially, let's see, it says in the Bible, it talks about tithing, that's a tenth, so it must be that I'm supposed to give him one-tenth of my, well, is that before taxes or after taxes? And, well, we'll figure this out, and then I will just write a check and done, all right? Now God should be happy because I have given him exactly what I owe. I hope that strikes you as wrong. But that is the way that people can approach God. Not, I mean, I'm kind of making it ridiculous, but with this attitude of, well, what do I owe him? And an easy way to answer that question is to look at what Jesus gave. How much did he hold back for us? And then ask the question, not what do I owe, but what should I hold back? And really the answer is nothing. We should hold nothing back. There should be no part of us where we say, well, okay, I'll give God you know, 95%, but this other 5%, that's just, that's just mine to do whatever sinful things I want to do with it. <laughs> Wait a second, where is your heart? Are you really wanting to come to me or not? When we look at the book of Hebrews, we have been going through the whole thing since September. And we are nearing the end, believe it or not. And in, uh, in the first lot of chapters, we talked about how Jesus is above everything else. And that there is no other way to approach God but through Jesus, because everything else falls short. But that Jesus has made the way open to the very presence of the living God. 
And he has provided the way for that to happen, where sinful people can actually come in the presence of God. And then we see the examples of all those who have gone before and how they lived by faith, following actively and trusting God. And then we saw in chapter 12 already, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is what we're to do. This is how we are to live. This has been marked out for us. Let's run that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then last week we saw that it says, uh, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, but instead endure hardship as discipline. It's not going to be an easy road, but God has that race marked out for us, and he is preparing us for good things. And then we get to today, chapter 12, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. It says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. I'm going to pause there for a second. You may have noticed the whole goal is still the same as what it's been the whole time, that drawing near to the presence of the living God. But it says without holiness, that doesn't happen. When we are trying to hold things back, when we're trying to um, say, well, God, you can have part of my life, but just, just this much and no more. No. This holiness that it talks about does not mean that, we are, uh, that we've gotten everything finally right and we're living exactly perfectly. But it means we are living lives that are wholly dedicated to God. That we are saying, it's what you want that I want more than anything else. And there will be times where we mess that up. But it is that devotion to God, that wholehearted devotion, that being set apart from the lives we used to live, that dying to self and living for God. That's what this is talking about. And then it gives the example of Esau, but it ties him in with sexual immorality, which seems a little weird at first, because if you remember the story of uh, Jacob and Esau, sexual immorality wasn't one of the things that really came into play. But this is, he's using two examples of the same kind of thing. And here's what it is. It says, Esau... You remember when he came in, he'd been out hunting, and he came in, he's really hungry, and so he says to his brother, hey, give me some of that food. And Jacob says, hmm, maybe you could give me your birthright. Then I'll give you some, some of the food. And he says, sure, that sounds like a good deal. I don't care. And that's what this is talking about. This attitude of whatever my physical, present Urges, desires, needs, wants, are, are going to trump anything that comes in the future. Because what I can see and touch now must be more important than anything that I can't see and can't touch. And he said that that kind of attitude of what I can see and touch is more important than what I can't see and touch. This is a godless way to live. 
And that's what Esau did. He traded his uh, blessing that he couldn't see and touch yet. (laughs) He would have later, but he didn't. Because he took what he could see and touch now and traded everything else for it. And later, afterward, of course, it says, he sought the blessing with tears. Something where he regretted that he had done that. Well, now I want what I could have now. (laughs) But it was too late. He couldn't change what he'd done. And I think that's the reason why he uses that, uh, why the author of the Hebrews uses that illustration when talking about sexual immorality, is it's the same kind of thing. People saying, you know, what I can see and touch now, trying to gratify those desires now with, without caring what the consequences are in the future. How many times have marriages been torn apart, families been torn apart, ministries been destroyed, lives been ruined because of sexual immorality where someone traded the desires of the moment for years and years of future pain. Because that is not what God wants for you. God has something much better for you. Do not be godless like Esau and say, well, I can see it now, I can touch it now, I want it now, I'm going to have it now. That's a godless way to live. But look for what it is that God has promised for you in the future and say, whatever it is that God has promised for me in the future, even if I can't see it and touch it now, I trust that he is telling the truth. And so I'm going to live with him and for him and so inherit what he has promised. And then with this idea of what, continuing the idea of what you can see and touch versus what you cannot see and cannot touch yet, we have the next illustration. Going back to when the people were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and they came out and they came to the mountain, Mount uh, Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments and all that. And here's how it's described. Because you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast and to such a voice, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Even an animal that touched the mountain had to be stoned to death. If an animal or a person, either one, had come up and touched the mountain, they had to be killed. And actually, they had an option. You could kill them by stoning or by shooting them with arrows. That's nice. Why those ways? So that that way no one would have to actually touch the person who had touched the mountain or to touch the animal that had touched the mountain. You had to do it at a distance because now that they've touched the mountain, you couldn't even get close to them. This was terrifying. And the idea is, God is holy. And as sinful people, we cannot come into his presence as sinful people. Not without being made holy ourselves. He is set apart. He is other and he is pure. And so he said, set this, uh, set up boundaries and barriers around the mountain and let everybody know they cannot cross those barriers. If they touch the mountain, that's too close and they must be killed. 
You can understand then why even Moses would say, I am trembling with fear. This is what the people were saying. It was a terrifying experience. And you have the darkness and the, um, and the smoke and the gloom and the fire and the shaking of the earth. But the writer of the Hebrews says, but that's not what you've come to. You are not those who are living, who have come out of slavery in Egypt. You are those who have been living in bondage and slavery to sin and to death. And Jesus has now set you free, and he's not brought you back to Mount Zion, or he's not brought you back to Mount Sinai to receive the law again. No, now he's brought you to a different mountain, to a different place. And here's what it is. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, etc., etc. He says, but, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, you have not come to the mountain of the law you have come to the mountain of grace. You have not come to the mountain where God says you cannot come close because you are sinful and unholy. And so you can't be near me. But you have come to the mountain where God says, come near because I have now made you holy. And you can approach and you can come near. And so be holy as I am holy. Be with me. This is what this... uh, where we have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Abel was, uh, these were the sons of Adam and Eve, and Abel was the one who was killed by his brother Cain. Cain kills his brother and thinks he's going to get away with it. Do you remember what it is that God says to Cain? You know, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? He says, listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And what is it crying out for? It's crying out that Cain is guilty. That Cain has done what should not be done. And that now Cain must be punished. This is what the blood of Abel says. But, it says that we have not come to that. We have come to a sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because the blood of Abel said, guilty. You're guilty and you must be punished. But the blood that we have come to is the sprinkled blood of Jesus who has already died taking on that penalty so that we no longer have to be punished for our sin. He's taken that on himself. So the blood that we have come to that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, instead of saying guilty, says forgiven. Forgiven. And so we don't come to the law, we come to grace. We don't come to guilt, but we come to forgiveness. We have come not to a mountain that can be seen and touched, 
But we have come to the kingdom of God, which though we may not be able to see it and touch it in the same way you could a mountain, it is even more real than any mountain you could see and touch. It's not that the mountain is unreal, but the mountain is temporary. Verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape and they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we, ref- if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. When they came to that mountain, and his booming voice spoke, even the mountain itself, something that seems so solid and stable, was shaken. And so there was nothing that they could hold on to as solid and stable. And it says, but there's going to be a time, one more time, where I'm going to speak, and it's not going to just shake that. It's going to shake everything. Everything. And this will be when the world as we know it is undone, but that the new heavens and the new earth become um, created in their fullness. This is the kingdom that we are receiving. Not one that is for a time, but one that is forever. If that's the kind of kingdom that we are receiving, how do we live? Verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Burning up all the sinfulness, all of the world that has turned against him. So that what remains is what is pure. When we approach the living God as though he were an idol, as though he were just there to serve us, like a genie in a bottle, when we approach God as though he's small and we can tell him what to do because we know better anyway, we're missing it. When we approach God and say, okay, how much do then do I have to you know, give before you're okay with that? We're missing it. When we understand that he is the judge of all, that he is a consuming fire, that one day all the sinfulness will be destroyed, then we say, I don't want to hold on to that anymore. I don't want to unite myself to that which is sinful. We sang a song earlier that had a great line in it. I wish I could remember now. Do you remember that line? (laughs) Debbie, come on. (laughs) I'm totally putting you on the spot. I thought I'd remember it, and I didn't either. So I was hoping. You can look back at that one. I think it was verse 2 of the first song we sang, whatever that one was. (laughs) 
about wanting to, the desire to be rid of even the sinful desires that we have. Recognizing that what we want is life with God above all else. And we don't want to hold on to anything that leads to death. We don't want to hold on to the things that are going to be destroyed. We want to hold on to that which is pure and that which is righteous and that which is holy and that which will last forever. And the thing is, apart from Jesus, we have no hope for this. But because of Jesus, we have every confidence that that will be ours. So let's live that way. And let's live with God in all that we do. You know, um, sometimes we... Hang on. Sometimes we start, when we think about the word worship, it says here, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And we think, okay, well, that, that worship word, that has to do only with what goes on in a worship service here. And sometimes it even gets narrowed down even further and it only, you know, there's praise and worship music. And so people think, well, it's, worship is what you do when you're singing songs, but nothing else. Like that, that's worship and then there's not the rest of it. William Temple, uh, I think I may have read this to you before, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury in the uh, 40s said, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love, and submission of the will to his purpose. And all this, gathered up in adoration, is the greatest of human expressions of which we are capable. It always goes back to Jesus. And when you think of the way that Jesus lived, and you read that description, that is how he lived. He lived a life of worship. And it didn't it wasn't because he went to a particular service once a week, and it wasn't because he sang particular songs. It was he lived his life to the glory of God. And that is a life of worship, and that is what we have been saved for. That is what we've been saved to. Titus puts it this way, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to, the, to ungodliness and, to, and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Or as Paul puts it in Romans uh, chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's not about how much you give. It's not about um, how often you make it to a worship service. It's not about how many songs you sing or how well you sing them, whether you're in tune or out of tune. It is about a life lived to the glory of God while giving generously, while meeting together with other Christians to worship, not individually, but together even, singing songs, but so much more. 
living our lives to the glory of God, made possible by Jesus Christ. This is our true and proper worship. With the vision of God who is the true and living God, not to be taken lightly, but to be approached reverently and thankfully. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.